Okay. For real. Hi, Christine. Hello, Rachel. Okay. So it is October 14th. That's the date. Yep. 2019. Mm -hmm. Correct. We are sitting in my father-in-law's office, um, uh, which is part of his home in Los Angeles. And we are about to record this conversation in which you are the guest. Is this weird for you? Yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, you knew it was, it, I didn't like. There's a strange meta thing of like being, it's almost like being John Malkovich or something like this like thing where I'm inside <laughs> of the thing that I help create. It's almost like as if I were, which I guess I am in my book, but as if I were like, my book were some live action thing. And then I suddenly stuck myself into it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's, I also think it's a little bit um, weird. What's weird about it for you? Um, well, because I think I feel, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about your book, obviously. Um, but there's also, I've known you for so long and in so many different ways. And uh, more than that, you know me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think I felt kind of, uh, in a way, some pressure to, you know, when you know someone well, I was thinking about this on the plane um, and I was thinking about all the, the projects we've worked on together and I was trying to put them in order. And, and I, I was like, I, the, the Wi-Fi on the plane was not very good. So I couldn't do what I had wanted to do, which was to go back and see what my very first email from you ever was. Oh, wow. But I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do that. But okay. You want to tell briefly the story of our life together before we <laughs> so talk nice. about your um, life? <laughs> sure. Hi, this is I Rachel Zucker, founder and host of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm speaking with poet, Commonplace producer, and freelance editor, Christine LaRusso, who is about to tell you how we met. Christine LaRusso received her BA from Fordham and her MFA in poetry from NYU. She is from Los Angeles and currently lives there with her partner, critic editor Colin Beckett. Christine moved home to California after spending a decade in Brooklyn. Her first book, an extraordinary book, called There Will Be No More Daughters, was published by Lake Forest Press on October 15, 2019, the day after we recorded this conversation. Christine was selected as the winner of the Madeline P. Plonsker Emerging Writers Residency Prize by Carmen Jimenez-Smith also known as Guest of Commonplace, Episode 31. And there is a short preface by Carmen in There Will Be No More Daughters. I wanted to feature Christine on Commonplace for several reasons. First of all, I want you to know about and buy and read her book, which is a gorgeous exploration of belonging and unbelonging, inheritance, memory, and erasure. Second, I've been wanting to talk to a younger, emerging poet about the particular challenges of publishing one's first book and figuring out how to make a life as a poet in 2019. Who better to talk to than Christine, with whom I've had the pleasure and honor of passionately talking about poetry, politics, food, family, and the old Los Angeles versus New York rivalry for 13 years. Those of you who teach may recognize the constellation of admiration, intimacy, and sisterhood. 
as well as the flickering shadows of jealousy and sizing each other up and growing pains in the meandering journey of my lifelong friendship with Christine that started out as teacher-student relationship. It's a relationship I haven't seen explored very much in literature, but it's one of the most beautiful, complicated, and sustaining parts of teaching. There should be a special word for the student-teacher relationship. Former student-turned-friend is a mouthful and omits the ways in which we continue always to learn from one another. Mentor-mentee doesn't really cover it. Padawan-master is way too condescending and masculine. The only word that feels right is friend, but that's so nonspecific and doesn't describe the particular intimacy of coming together as creative writing teacher-student and transitioning into peers. Knowing Christine and her poems over the course of so many years makes me feel awake, alive, younger, connected to younger concerns and adventures, makes me feel compelled to support, mentor, and set a good example. My relationship with Christine also sometimes makes me feel old, out of touch, simultaneously wise and stupid, admired and misunderstood, complicit for choices I've made in my own life that I'm not sure were the right ones. Mostly, I feel extraordinarily lucky to have had the chance to work closely with Christine these past many years. My friendship with her has widened and deepened my mind and heart and my own creative work. I am so pleased to be able to share this conversation in which Christine and I talk about her new book, her life in Los Angeles, her decision to be child-free, the difficulties of freelancing, and so much more. So I need to make a plea to those of you who enjoy Commonplace and who are able to, but are not yet supporting the podcast financially, to please consider making a one-time donation or, better yet, becoming a patron of Commonplace by visiting our website, commonpodcast.com. If you join at the level of $10 or more a month, you'll become part of the Commonplace Book Club and have the opportunity each episode to win books by our guests or by authors we mention in the episode. For this episode, some Commonplace Book Club members will receive There Will Be No More Daughters by Christine LaRusso, courtesy of Lake Forest Press. Even if you can't manage $10 or more patronage, every bit helps. Commonplace has no ads and no corporate or institutional funding. All Commonplace patrons get access to bonus audio and other patron extras, such as, for this episode, audio of Christine reading Lunar Understanding, an audio file of Christine's reading at NYU, the syllabus from the class I taught and Christine took in 2013, a list of Restaurants That Might Make Rachel Zucker Move to Los Angeles by Christine LaRusso, and an audio file of me reading a poem that I wrote for Christine. The poem is called Dear Christine and was published in the anthology The Manifesto Project, edited by Rebecca Hazelton and Alan Michael Parker. Also, I'm thrilled to announce that Commonplace has partnered with a charitable organization that has pledged to donate $200 per episode to a charitable organization chosen by each episode's guests. This will happen for all of 2020 and will start with this episode. Christine has chosen Idle No More, 
a network of indigenous communities in land struggle, which works to create peaceful revolution to honor indigenous sovereignty and to protect the land and water. I'll make another request for support and give you a few more updates toward the end of the episode. But for now, let's get back to our conversation. Story, which you should, you know, fill in blanks. Yes, but, I'm going to. Um, you were my poetry teacher as an undergrad at Fordham Mm -hmm. Um, and then I graduated (laughs) and then you became my poetry teacher again when I went to NYU to get my MFA and I stayed in touch with you because I kept writing because you told me to Um, and then I have worked for you in various ways um, for various projects Um, most recently the project we're making right now which yes. is um our poetry podcast commonplace um and I'll I really will never forget when you called me and you're like I have this really <laughs> zany idea I just don't know if it's gonna work I don't know if we should do it but I kind of just want to try and I really was like I don't think this is gonna go anywhere <laughs> I admit it I was sort of like oh Rachel's just she's like freaking out about something and just wants to like <laughs> She just needs to like put her energy into like thinking something through for a little while. Mm-hmm. Like, but here we are. I think- okay, wait, wait. I have. Okay, first of yeah. all, yes, I have to fill in some stuff and clarify yeah. some stuff. But but just for for that question, I'm so curious. I mean, I, I what I remember is you saying I really don't like the word podcast, <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I'm not saying I don't like podcasts. I just really don't like the word podcast. And I was like, okay, Christine. Can you possibly move beyond that to that's what they're called? I didn't make that up. Um, but why did you think it wasn't going to work? And or 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 was it more about the idea, or was it more that you had seen me go through other ideas that hadn't worked? No, I think there was just a tone in your voice of kind of like. Uh, like you were just going to throw a dart at something and uh-huh. hope it stuck. And so I, I just didn't know if the dart was going to stick. Yeah. Um, that is kind of what we did. at the Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But at the same time, you were very enthusiastic. So yeah. probably, you know, a big reason why we're here today. Yeah. Okay. So just to clarify, because I think, I think that is the broad strokes of how we know each other. And then you came to NYU. And then um, I think it was the... It was, yeah, it was 2013. Did you graduate from in 2013 or 2014? Yeah. yeah. So, so the semester that, that you graduated, my mother died the first week of the semester. And, um, I mean, that was just like, I can barely remember that class. Um, except I do remember you really helping me a lot. Um, and then after that semester, when you graduated, um, the, the first thing you really, really helped me with was my mom's estate and trying to figure out like all of her literary um you know uh her books and her stuff and so it it, that is like a a very specific kind of work like I guess you could say it was under the rubric of assistant work but but it was so emotional as well as logistical that I think it was you know uh, a, a whole different kind of intimacy, you know, that, that developed, um, you know, and I, I, I really, you know, trusted you so much. Um, and there were a bunch of different people who helped me, but, but you, um, you know, really kind of like, uh, 
saw the whole thing through. And, and then um, Arielle and I decided to uh, republish Home Birth. And you were the project manager or whatever your title is. We're, we're never very good with titles. But, no. <laughs> um, you know, you made that project happen. So, like, we also kind of published a book together. Um, and, and that, I think, is also a very, very intimate um, kind of project to do together. Uh, and then, yeah, you're the only one left from the beginning of commonplace, right? Oh, you know, yeah. James has come and gone and Nicholas yeah. has come and gone. And okay, so that's 2005 or six at the latest. 2005 or six is when we met. Mm-hmm. That's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to move to your book, we're going to go move back and forth. But I've seen um, the poems in this book. Some of them I've seen, you know, many, many times, and I saw earlier versions of the book. Um, it is an incredible book. I loved rereading it on the plane, and I thought, I don't, I don't really need to reread this book. I know the, <laughs> of all the books, I don't need to reread this book. I know mm-hmm. this book, and I have to say, I saw all these new things in it, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that. Um, one thing that I felt was that, well, actually. Do you want to read a poem just to like get it in into the air? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Do yeah. you have a request? I have so many. I mean, I thought maybe <laughs> you'd start with one of the shorter ones. But yeah. one of the things I love about the book is that there are different forms, different tones. So it's it's a little bit tricky to pick. You know, one poem is not representative of the book. Yeah. So maybe pick, I don't know, brine, bivalve, um, and then later we'll make sure to have you read something that's you know that sounds different brian i long to tongue a vulgar thing a morsel sweet we have been here so long out on these dinghies barely brigs or yalls this wind like betrayal sent us looking i keep asking the water to explain itself but it only reflects my bad deeds We couldn't squall our way back to town if we tried. Air so iodine, no smell of salted fish could lead us. Agnes and me, and in the distance, an abandoned catch, mirage of Alaskan sea, slouching towards a reckless chasm. Agnes, the first girl I wanted to kiss, her lips cold as a coma. Her skin livid, hair a violent red stirring. The mice, how Agnes drowned those mice. I couldn't forget it. We were only nine years old. She ripped the whiskers out with tweezers. I thought I would go blind after that. This, I confess, but it's not my stone to carry, and I haven't the muzzle for throwing. With every anchor, a wrinkle deepening. I grew taller that day, but still buckle when I see a weak thing suffer. A paper cut on my palm, a notch in the timeline of my life. And did you write that poem at NYU? Yes. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you I'm glad you read that one. So one of the things that I was thinking about was that when I first met you at Fordham, when you were an undergraduate, I mean, I was really struck by, I mean, it was very clear to me right away that you had enormous talent. Mm-hmm. And your work, um, there's one other student from Fordham who I've, you know, also be kept very, very close touch with and is a really close friend. But 
I mean, not I'm no no nothing bad about Fordham, but for whatever reason, in my cl- in the classes that I taught there, and the people that that chose to take my classes, the two of you were were just standouts beyond. Um, oh my gosh! I mean, it was just it made the whole thing worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't the best experience and it was it you know but you um and Lindsay were just um i, I mean it, you know it was really uh it was really an incredible to see this quality of language and i i don't you know i don't really even know that i helped you or did anything um because the what i hear in your work some of it was there from the very very beginning you know or i'm not not that that was the beginning but the beginning for me and so if i was were to try to describe what it was that i heard you know so early on it was this density of language this musicality of language a really muscular feeling of um syntax and really surprising inventive uh, diction, sometimes compounded words that you were playing with, or just words, uh, nouns used as verbs, and 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 um, so it was like you just had a poet's sensibility and a poet's voice, um, and a level of complexity and sophistication that that I did not like. That was very surprising to me, um, and and also this kind of real. Um, a really interesting resistance to narrative. And you and I have been having conversations about narrative and resistance to narrative and especially like autobiographicality or whatever we want to call it. And I think that, you know, for sure in those undergrad classes, it was a real challenge for me as a teacher um, to kind of figure out how to run the class because, you know, it's a student workshop. And so other students were reading your work and saying things like, I don't understand, or I like this, or I don't like this, or maybe you could change this. And I was, I just, you know, part of me just wanted to be like, okay, Christine, just don't listen. Just don't listen to any of your peers, which of course is not the way workshop is supposed to be. Um, And then I think that um, from my understanding that even though once you got to NYU, you were amongst other extraordinary writers from who you have, you know, learned so much. And, you know, you had an amazing cohort um, there. And yet, I remember that you still encountered some difficulty in workshop, particularly around this, this question of narrative. Um, you want to talk about that? Do you feel comfortable <laughs> talking about that at all? Yeah, I think I know. it's I really mean, important. Um, I could talk a lot about the MFA experience. I think I don't know how much we want to go down that road, but I um, I will say that was absolutely my biggest challenge at NYU was facing the fact that I I think I was writing a lot of poems that yeah were um, intentionally anti-narrative, and then I later moved to as the book reveals like a, a slightly more um, narrative mode, but I needed to write those poems to get there. Um, and it was really, really, I think, difficult at times to um, be in workshop and and have a lot of sort of the same questions I had received my whole life about my work, which is really just like, you know, I, what, but what's the story here? What's going on here? And it's, I, I've, um, you know, I've been asked directly which I found kind of upsetting in class to like have to like reveal what the poem, and I just don't believe in like poems as like puzzles to be figured out. And like, I, 
I think that like the main thing was like, what feeling did you leave with? Like what sense did you leave with when you read the poem is like way more important to me than somebody like fully understanding every like narrative move that happens. Um, and I also reject the idea of there having to be one at all. So um, that was, that was a little challenging at times, I think. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think, strangely good for me because I also like was a little bit rebellious and you know and Kamiko Han's class particularly wrote like the most abstract and distant you know narratively distant poems I could Mm -hmm. um and like working through that eventually I came back around and took your class again and it was in that class that I finally wrote the most direct poems I had ever written um so it like I don't I'm still on the fence of like, I can explain like later if you want why I think an MFA is worth it or not worth it. I think there's arguments for both sides, but in that way it was worth it for me in the way that I like allowed myself to go as far to one side as possible that like opened up the other side for me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of that also had to do, I think with, with your class, like you gave amazing assignments in that class that just like led me to write those poems. So, um, I, I owe a lot of that to you. Um, and I was going to even ask you, like, if you saw your teaching in this book. Well, I, it's so <laughs> interesting and complicated because one of the things that I noticed about the book is that it's much more narrative than I remember it in earlier drafts. And I really enjoyed that. Like, first I was like, I don't remember her grandmother being in here so much. <laughs> And I thought, no, she probably was in here, but maybe she wasn't named or mm-hmm. maybe, you know, and then I was like, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it the reordering? Is it, is it, is it just a few poems, particularly towards the beginning that is giving it this like narrative context? And then I thought, I really love this. You know, I loved the book all the way through, um, but I but I felt like really interested that it had become more narrative. And I and I feel, I mean, I'm obviously really pleased to hear you say that that I was part of that. But there's another part of me, you know, that I think that I felt very protective of you and your anti-narrative stance, even though it's not at all my personal aesthetic. I always appreciated. Um, you know, I, I really kind of pride myself as a reader and as a teacher of loving lots of work that is nothing like mine and that and that holds, you know, true to no particular, you know, aesthetic um, and certainly no like right amount of autobiography. Um, and so I thought, like, I don't know, did 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 you feel pressured to do that? Did you feel a permission to do that? Did you feel um, like I I worry that there's um, I do believe that there is that there's something that moves a reader uh, when you when the reader feels like there's enough narrative clarity to care very specifically about the people without the without the reveal without the you know it's not I'm, I, I don't feel that and but I'm worried I guess that 
that I do have a bias and that it, you know, it keeps mm-hmm. coming out or that it's, you know, so I don't know. That's a very long winded way of saying, yeah, this is exactly what I noticed. The biggest thing I noticed in the book rereading it was that it's more narrative than I remembered. And like, why, what happened? How did that happen? <laughs> um, well, it was my residency that, so I had, of course, I, you know, I had a, a thesis from NYU and then I, kept writing so I had other poems that I had had added to this stack and I really believed that my thesis was a, a book mm-hmm. when I graduated which I think was very incorrect um and I was sending it out and sending it out and not getting anything um I think I was a finalist once uh and then I won this prize which was attached very smartly so I think I wish all prizes had something like this um, attached to them, which was a three-week residence. So it was, I won the prize based on a manuscript in progress. It mm-hmm. wasn't like, this is your finished book that you're going to publish. It was your manuscript in progress, which you can finish at this residency, and then, you know, we'll publish it after. Um, and so I had three weeks um, at Lake Forest College in Illinois to to work on this book. I had never experienced three full weeks of free time to work on my book, not at NYU, because I worked at NYU. Mm-hmm. I worked other jobs on top of NYU. I have never had that experience of, I mean, almost my whole life, except when I was like a kid kid, like of just complete freedom to work on my art. Um, and it was really hard at first. It took I think I was right. You know, you told me like, it's going to take like the first, cause you had heard from, you know, you, when you went to residency, mm-hmm. I think, was it Jenny who told you yep. that the three days you're going to do nothing and you should do nothing. You need to just completely like retrain your brain or not even train it. Like <laughs> teach your brain to not do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's so used to, I'm like, so used to like waking up in the morning and taking the dog and like having everything on a schedule. And I was suddenly not on a schedule. Um, so it took a little while to ease into that. And then once I did, I was able to reread the poems I had and and could see what I was actually writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, when I was there, I was doing all of this research uh, about my mom's side of the family, mm-hmm. um, my family, uh, and learning because I there were a lot of things I was never told um, when I was growing up. Um, which, uh, you know, I, I just, in the book, it becomes clear that, you know, we were sort of raised to believe we were Americans, right? Like, and th- thinking about trying to sort of erase uh, any sense of how we became Americans. Um, I should say all that, uh, like, I should add that I'm, of, I'm multiracial, I'm Chinese, Mexican uh, and a lot of other things, including Italian and Czech. And anyway, um, so that the part, my mom's side of the family is the Chinese Mexican, um, Irish part, Scottish Irish part. And I didn't know much about the, our, our family history beyond like the most basic things that, you know, my grandmother grew up, was born in Watts in 1935 and like things like that. But I didn't know, you know, about her Mexican family or anything. So I was doing all of this ancestral research because I, it was basically like a thing that I hadn't done and also something I would, I had never done it. So I wanted to do it. And also something I would do when I didn't know what to do with myself. Mm. Like I 
couldn't read anymore at that point. I couldn't write in my notebook anymore at that point. I had walked in the cold in Illinois for long enough that I was freezing and <laughs> I live in California. I needed to like just do something else. And so that became the, the thing I would do. Um, and in that process, I saw sort of glimmers of what that story, or me trying to understand that story and the, the poems I had. And I realized I needed to write into that more. Mm. And so then I wrote new poems that I, I hope started to link together um, the various narratives of my family history and then um, also of how my father plays into that and his death um, and and sort of growing up and, and experiencing both his death as well as like other big bit like my friend there's a very long poem uh, about my friend Andrew dying when I was a teenager um, so experiencing a lot of, of death at a young age and sort of um, that as well so yeah. My memory of the book before it it became what it is now is that it was about the body, your body, female bodies, about um, the death of your father. And, and that if I had to kind of think about like the central emotional plot in a way of the book, it was emotional clarity and urgency and an, and a speaker who was who knew who knew with a lot of clarity certain things and was not going to tell certain things mm-hmm. and this version it's so much about the things that you weren't told mm-hmm. and so much about not knowing your history and um, the reasons, some of the reasons for that and not knowing your Chinese name or not knowing, you know, and so it's such a fascinating thing. And I'm, and I'm sort of hesitant to kind of paint it almost like as like a therapy epiphany. Like <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to simplify it cause I think it's both, you know, it's not just one thing at all. And it's, it's not like, Oh, finally the narrative impulse has won out. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's, that's, um, accurate. I do sometimes think when I'm reading a poem where there is a very clear resistance um, to say what happened, that on some level the poem does need to do the work of of explaining the reason of why it's not saying what happened. Not necessarily in narrative terms, not like the first line is like, this is why I'm not telling you what happened, but that the occasion of the poem or the occasion of the utterance or the, or the, or, or even something about the need to resist narrative, um, is, is clear in the poem on some level. And I always felt that it was clear, but now I have kind of a new, like psychological understanding of that. And I'm a little hesitant to, to impose that on the work, even though as a reader, I feel like it deepens the work. It connects the poems to each other. It connects you, um, to history. It connects you, um, like there's something, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just really fascinated about, uh, and, and how that happened, um, kind of late in the, in the, in the, in the game, you know, with this book, like that it was already accepted. And then in a way it became another book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing too, was that it, uh, so the last poem or sort of like a genreless prose poem piece, um, 
I wrote that a long time ago. I wrote that in at NYU, and then I it was really it's a really hard poem for me to revisit and edit. And then when I did, I I think um, Carmen had an edit for me for it, um, which was to be more detailed about certain moments in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I did do that edit, um, I actually saw you know also how much of the book was about like the white. I mean, I had I had written about this, but I had not named the fact that like the violence inflicted upon the women in the book is like because of like white patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, once that crystallized too, I think that also helped me like edit a lot of the other poems and like pull together that part of the narrative as well. Um, so that last poem, I think in many ways is was a key for me uh, in like unlocking the manuscript as a whole. And like, in some ways I also think it's like a kind of key for the the reader in the book as well. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this in, in any helpful way, but like so much of the book is about, um, remembering, um, and memory, but then there's this, this other part about what happens to, the mind or to memory when there there are forces actively at work to erase um and and the violence of that of of either being erased um by a, a stepmother or being erased by history or being away erased by white supremacy or having an, a part of your identity um you know erased um and so th- there does there is kind of um a way in which i guess telling what happened and the narrative, your anti-narrative stance shifts um, because now telling the story is really um, an act of self-preservation and of, um, and of feminism. And um, whereas I think it, it was before and is still true that being forced to tell your story in a certain way for a particular audience or because somebody else doesn't want to do the work um, or isn't open to lots of different forms and lots of different bodies and lots of different aesthetics that, you know, pushing back against that is also a feminist action and also, you know, against whiteness and against patriarchy. Okay. Can we talk a few nuts and bolts? Sure. Yeah. So I haven't really ever spoken to somebody who is at the very beginning of their literary career. And so you had your thesis, you thought it was a, a you know, book manuscript, you realized that was not really the case. Um, but I want to hear more about like, did you realize that because you kept getting rejections? How did the rejections feel? Um, you know, what, because I remember it was really disheartening. And so here you are, you know, how did this book come to be? Well, I actually still believed when I won the prize that I had a like almost finished manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> I remember telling Colin, my my partner, I was like, I'm, I have three weeks. I'm just going to, I guess I can write a new book. I'm going to write a totally new book. <laughs> I remember you said yeah. <laughs> And he's like, oh, sure you are. Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. Yep, write your second book. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course that everything completely changed. Um, but yeah, the years leading up to that opportunity were, yeah, I would say they're rough. I mean, I think they were rough. I think that the system of contests for poetry books is awful. I would use a word, a more strong word. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I 
we're allowed right now. I guess I am allowed. You are. (laughs) (laughs) It's shitty. Um, It's really shitty. Um, Particularly because it cost me a lot of money to apply for those those contests. Um, Do you have any idea how much money you spent on that? I mean, I had to be in the thousands. Mm -hmm. I mean, over a thousand, I would say, Mm -hmm. in the end. Maybe maybe not that much, but like hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. And while you can write that off on your taxes and all that, it doesn't matter like for somebody who is probably living you know i'm not the only one who's in this boat which is why you know i think i can talk about this but like living paycheck to paycheck or you know freelancing and not exactly knowing when the next check is coming in or things like that and but at the same time you desperately want to have your work out in the world um for you know various reasons and you're also seeing you know your peers again i had this amazing cohort at nyu my um colleagues are completely brilliant. I mean, I was in classes with Robin Cost Lewis, for instance, um, Morgan Parker, uh, just endless talent in, in those years at NYU and probably still are great poets, of course. Um, but you know, I'm watching all of my colleagues, uh, get published and so that, yeah, it, it wore me down a little bit. Um, and I wasn't able to focus on anything new, hmm. um, write much new work at all, uh, while I was like hoping that this book got published. Um, and I think that was the hardest thing for me is like, I still just felt like it was unfinished until it was a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, I wanted to resist the idea that publication is like, should be the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, that's that's just how it played out in my mind for this this round of release. I don't know if that is how it's going to go for the next book or, or next manuscript, but um, I needed this to be to be like accepted by some powers higher than me for me to like move on to the next the next project. And and um, so ha- part okay. We're going to talk about L.A. more specifically in a minute. But one of the other things that happened to you was you were living in Brooklyn um, and then you decided to move to Los Angeles, um, you know, while you were sending the manuscript out and getting rejected. And um, and what were the jobs that you were doing post MFA? Um, I was working for you. I worked at a gosh, I tutored. Mm hmm. Um, I did a lot of, I still do some like copywriting, copy editing on the side. Um, I ended up working at an educational startup for a while, which was horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was, I mean, I took any, almost any gig I could get mm-hmm. for a while. Um, I still kind of do to a degree. Um, well, I do remember actually that you, um, and I, I, I say this uh, n- not with any criticism. I do remember um, that you were like, but I won't do childcare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. Well, I think there's probably a long stretch of this conversation we might want to reserve for talking about <laughs> um, my choice to be child-free, as mm-hmm. Ada Limon put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could definitely go that route. Yeah, I. Um, I don't think. I, I well, one thing is I never grew up as like a babysitter. I didn't do mm-hmm. that as a kid, as like a side. Uh, I would I was like a dog walker, or I worked at a coffee shop, or something like that when I when I was in high school. But I was never the the babysitter. Mm-hmm. Um, my other cousins were for the younger kids, my older cousins. Um, uh, 
but that was never for whatever reason, I guess maybe my aunts and uncles just sensed that like I wasn't great, like wouldn't be good at it or something. I, I just wasn't given that job. So um, I don't actually have a lot of experience with uh, caring for young mm-hmm. kids for uh, very long and definitely not without a, their own adults around. Um, at the same time, I love talking to kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm at this point in my life where my friends are starting to have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, been a pretty major shift in my uh, social life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm exposed to kids now a lot. Um, and I, I really enjoy their company, but I have just never been, yeah, like sort of responsible for them, I guess. See, I thought, I always thought it was um, in part having to do with a a feeling that you didn't want to get trapped um, and that there would be something about falling into, you know, because it's a, it's, it's more high paying per hour compared to some of the other jobs that are available. Um, And I always read that um, maybe wrongly as, as, as you sort of being like, you know, I've seen, and, and this has happened um, to so many women in particular, some men, but m- many more women where you get kind of trapped in, in that, um, in that, I can't even call it a profession, but I wondered more generally about the jobs that you took. You said, you know, you take anything. There were jobs you didn't take and you didn't, for example, decide to like maybe try to get a different degree or, you know, to, and so I, I, I see that you have protected maybe, um, a kind of life that would also enable you to keep writing. Am I wrong about that? Or like, you know, what, what, um, no, I think that's absolutely, um, correct. I, um, I see what you're saying about childcare. I, I, um, I think I saw a little bit of that and you were talking about Lindsay, who was my, my friend and your student as well at Fordham, who was also the other, I might, you know, I think I gravitated towards her as an undergrad because we were both, you know, poets who I think really wanted to be poets. It wasn't like we were taking a creative writing class just for like fun. We were like very committed to the idea of, of writing for the rest of our lives. And I think I think I did see Lindsay sort of fall into uh, childcare in a way that felt like almost felt like she was stuck in it, but she seemed to really love it. Mm-hmm. So I, I see what you're saying, and I think there there was probably a part of that there. Yeah, um, now that you say it, it seems more clear um, <laughs> to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have always tried to to do what I can to create spaces for myself that make it easier for me to write. Mm -hmm. Um, That's become, I think, increasingly difficult. Uh, Just, I think they're like, because as as I've gotten older, I think, I I actually think I require, like it's very um, almost silly to like refer to like Virginia Woolf's room of one's own, but I think about this all the time that I don't have a private space in my home that's just mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I've gotten sort of older and like it's become harder and harder for me to have not have that. Um, and so the way I carve out space now is like a lot of, I, I actually write best when I'm not home. So I try mm-hmm. and like whenever I have an opportunity to travel, I travel. I've, I've learned now from that residency how beneficial it is to do residencies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I'm trying to actively like apply to residencies, you know, that, um, as much as I can to try and get those opportunities too. 
And and is that also part of your decision to be child-free as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah I'd say that's part of it. Um, there's a lot, a lot of reasons. I For me, the biggest reason is that I, not to sound like super apocalyptic, but I, I'm concerned about what life on the planet's going to look like in 20 years. And for me, it feels... For me personally, it, it, it wouldn't feel good to, to bring a child into the world with that uncertainty. Um, obviously, nobody really knows what it's going to look like, but it's scary enough for me at this point in my life that I don't want to do it. Um, and then, yeah, I think I am, I am really concerned about giving up any more of my free time and free space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... The, the what I have now and what I give to my partner and my dog is a lot. And I, I love to give it to them, but I also want to reserve enough for myself to keep writing. So in some ways it feels really selfish to say that. Um, but I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it sounds selfish at all. I think it sounds honest and painful and not painful. I, I mean, it, it just seems incredibly, incredibly difficult because you are in a, you know, I think that, look, we all know all of the, your cohort at NYU and other writers and, and there's the teaching um, possibility, which is um, let, there are fewer and fewer jobs. Um, and even, you know, I know more and more women who have left tenured jobs because they say it's horrible. Um, and have gone back into other kinds of workplace situations. Um, then there's the freelancing, which um, I think has some really good things and some terrible things, including having to hustle and and find new work over and over again. So you're spending so much work getting work, and it's not well paid, um, you know, compared to other kinds of, of work. You know, and then there's corporate jobs. And we are living in a time where, first of all, I think there's a lot of corporate jobs that you would never want to do because, you know, there's really no way to make money and not be either killing someone or destroying the planet, you know, a a (laughs) few steps removed. Right. Yeah. Um, But also you have, we live in such a crazy work culture that if you have one of those jobs, you have almost no time um, or mental energy to make creative work. Mm -hmm. But, if you don't have enough money, you also can't make creative work. Right. And then you put in, you know, a, a romantic partner and an animal that you are responsible for. And yeah, so I think I I have no. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, somebody retweeted the an interview with Ann Boyer where they asked what her biggest block to her writing was, and she said capitalism. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so everything you're saying right now to me is just, yeah, it's, it's capitalism, right? Like it's, it's that catch 22 of like, you don't have the, if you don't have the money, if you don't have the job, if you don't have the job, then you don't have the money. And you, you know, that's why, I mean, those resident, I'm chasing residencies right now. Right. Cause yeah. those will, I think I'm hoping give me the focus and time I need to, to work on, on a new book. Um, though right now I haven't been able to think much about that with my publication date tomorrow but yeah um yeah yeah so okay before we um wrap up the part about how the book came to be a book Mm -hmm. and not a manuscript 
do you have advice for, um, you know, either post MFA or no MFA? Cause we're going to still also talk about that more, uh, people who have a manuscript or who have, you know, either what they think is a man- finished manuscript, um, or a group of poems. And, um, how do you, how do you make it through those difficult times if you're not one of the incredibly lucky people who somehow gets something taken right away? And I really, I know almost no stories like that. There are a few, but it's not the norm. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I don't think the norm. Um, I think it's important to just keep, you know, in touch with your MFA community with your other your readers you trust um you know Rachel you've always been there for me so I'm very lucky I had you as a great reader to just send poems in the middle of the night to whenever I had a new one but um and to, to really like I mean the lesson I learned is that you even when you think you have a book you might not have a book mm-hmm. <laughs> and to just um give yourself a little more time and and try and find that space to like reread it um, do a totally different activity like I did with the, you know, the ancestral research, not thinking that would lead to anything, um, that might lead to something that cracks something open for the manuscript. Um, but the main thing for me was just having, you know, many readers and, and, and then that time, the two things together, I think helped it help the book finally see it, help me see the book, Mm -hmm. um, as it is now, at least or get there. Yeah. And so just also, I guess the question is from the time that the book was accepted, um, until now and you're, you know, the pub date is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might not have as much to say about this last part as you will a year from now, but I kind of, I kind of want you at this like moment where it's just coming into the world. And you of course have been doing some promotional stuff and thinking about stuff, but that's the other question I have about, so do you have, um, advice um for people or even just like things that you are so different than you expected about what it means to make a book um the 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 experience of um the design um the um you know what it what it means to put a a book out into the world right now um you know what the what the opportunities are what the challenges are what the stakes are you know so you know you 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 kept at it you kept at it you kept at it and here it is how do you feel are you like (laughs) is it everything you wanted or are you like i'm terrified this This is what i was trying to do i'm terrified i have i I was actually planning to reread my book last night preparation for this and I couldn't do it. Uh I was weirdly like nervous and stressed out about it. I couldn't. And then I was just like, you know, the poems like, don't worry about it. Like you're just, it's okay. If you can't read the book right now, that's okay. Um, So there's that feeling. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Uh Um, I will say the one thing for me was that I have been unafraid to ask for things I want Mm. with the press. So for instance, I asked for, to pick my own book designer. Um, and they said, yes. Um, and so Jacob is who, uh, normally designs for Chinhouse. He, he designed Morgan's books, Morgan Parker's books as well. Designed this book, Jacob Bala. He's fantastic to work with and a brilliant designer. Um, and so I, that's one thing, you know, I, I would, if I had a piece of advice for folks who have been accepted is to try and get what you want mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at least try I mean what's the worst they say is no right um so that that's something I'm I'm still trying to do um so 
yeah, I mean, but otherwise I am, I am like totally terrified and don't know what, you know, I, I was, I, and it's funny, there were so many things that Ada said in that interview. I, mean, I just listened to it. So that's why it's on my mind so much. But when she was just like, the way I calmed myself down was like, nobody's going to read it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh yeah, that's true. Right. It's poetry. Like this is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, it's so funny because I'm always honest with you. Right. Um, but I do, I do in some ways feel protective of you. And um, I, you know, my new book just came out and I, I'm just, I don't know if things are worse or if I just have less, um, emotional resources, but I am finding it just excruciating beyond belief. Like, so it doesn't get better. Um, at least for me, um, that fear that you're describing, Mm -hmm. um, and the economics of it, uh, either have gotten worse or more depressing for me just because I thought it would get better when it was my 10th book. But, you know, to think about how much money I spend, uh, traveling to read from the book. And I, I had a really painful Rosh Hashanah dinner. Um, and someone who was really trying to be nice, but isn't a poet, uh, and read my book and liked it and said, um, Oh, have you had any reviews yet? And I was like, well, not, not really. And then, um, he said, will it be reviewed in the New York times? And I was like, I I don't think so. Um, (laughs) and then he said, um, he had a book come out, um, in a non-poetry, you know, textbook and, and, um, and some other nonfiction books. And he was like, well, have you ever thought of like going on C-SPAN? <laughs> and I was like, what is happening here? And he said, and, or like donating the proceeds of a reading. Um, and, and Josh said, what proceeds? <laughs> And it just, it was just, and it just kind of, and it it sort of like got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I just got sort of like more and more embarrassed and everyone around the whole table was watching and listening and, and finally sort of to defend myself a little bit, but also in a way to get him off the hook because he wasn't doing it. He wasn't like, how are you such a failure? You know, he was trying to say like, I think it's a good book. How come nobody's buying it? I think it's a good book. How come no one's reviewing it? You know? I said, you know, with poetry, it's not, you know, economic success is really not a, a good metric. Um, and then someone else at the table very thoughtfully said, well, what is your metric of success? And then I literally almost started weeping because I didn't really know the answer to that in that moment. Yeah. And I thought, how, why don't I know the answer? So, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel... Um, it, I'm sure it's going to be totally different for you. Well, I was going to say, I don't, I don't know either. I mean, I think that's, uh, I don't know if we'll ever know, right? Right. Like, we're figuring it out as we go. But I think there's this like weird thing, which is similar to what we were talking about before, about like, how do you support yourself and have a writing life, which mm-hmm. is like, how do you support the book? But uh, in, a, in a way um, that makes any sense, because the book is not going to sell, you know, a bazillion copies um, because no poetry book does. So that's not the measure of success. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get paid a lot of money, like, you know, even probably your travel. Um, And so why are you traveling? And, and, and yet to not travel, to not uh, read from the book, to not promote the book, to not try to like sell it is to, to kind of do a disservice to the book and to the press, but you and I are not really salespeople. 
Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna mention something about how you went on your anti-social media. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, posting spree for a sound machine. Um, and you've been doing a lot of posting for your book, which is fantastic. But I, I'm really, ho- I'm terrible at that. I'm trying to become better at it, but it's very I, difficult to to get in that mode. I don't. I, I want to. I, I know I'm interrupting. And I want to hear what you have to say, but no, I, <laughs> I actually think that the social media stuff, because that's different for this book mm-hmm. um, than than even when I published my last books. I think it's making me ill. Like seriously ill. Like I think it's making me mentally unstable. I, I I haven't posted actually for a while on and on Twitter or Instagram um, because I think there's a lot of stuff going on. But I I really think it's bad for me. Yeah. But I don't know what to do because that's the way you do it. Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, social media has been a a blessing in some ways for for poetry. Yep. I mean. Victoria Chang posts a new poem every day from something she's reading, right? And I, I learned so much from her account alone. Um, and that's fantastic. She's also, you know, sharing tons of writers that people might otherwise not come across. Um, but at the same time, it's it's labor. It's a lot of labor. It's labor you're doing for yourself and you're not paying yourself. Um, yep. It's exhausting. It's like makes you, at least me, it makes me feel very vulnerable like this position of like, if I post something and it only gets like one like, you know, is <laughs> what did I do wrong? Um, you know, so it makes you feel bad. It can make you feel really bad. It can also make you feel really great. Sometimes mm-hmm. folks are very receptive and um, you can have some great conversations that way. But um, it is, it's a conundrum for us, us especially. I think we both resist it a little bit. And, yeah. 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 Do you have a sense of... Um, what like the next few months are going to be like you're you're this is so nuts i can't believe it that i'm here and you're flying <laughs> to new york yeah um to do this reading at it's nyu strange yeah. yeah i almost didn't i almost wasn't going to be here either i was mm-hmm. going to be in new york for the whole week a friend of mine was married um on saturday and i was planning to to go to washington dc and then go up to new york for the week um and ultimately made the decision to to not attend the wedding and, and be here for this as well as our reading tomorrow and mm-hmm. stories with Tommy. Um, what does the, the next, I mean, so yes, I have this reading tomorrow and then, uh, NYU on Friday. And then I have a reading with Shira Ehrlichman and Tommy at the Ace Hotel back here in LA. And that, I think that event for me, for some reason is going to feel, I think the most like a book launch. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything that's, like a book launch party thing <laughs> like some people do. I, I think that's going to feel the closest to it. I think partially because um, the three of us all sort of have, you know, are sort of, I mean, they're way more famous than I am, but they, they are sort of like in the same age group of poets have um, books all coming out around roughly around the same time. Um, so, and it's being treated sort of in a, in like the public the publicity of it as like more of a, book party type thing so I almost feel like I wonder if like it's not gonna feel real or like the book isn't gonna feel out in the world until then but I don't really know mm-hmm. like I don't know if people are gonna be talking about it on, at all or not um probably not because poetry like we said but mm-hmm. <laughs> okay and and um what what's like the best thing so far about having published the book and what did it feel like when you like felt when you uh, opened the box or opened the envelope and you held the first copy in your hand? Um, 
I, I haven't, I, it's, I still have some anxiety around it. Yeah. I think, I think cause a lot of it, like we talked about in the beginning here is like me being very direct about things. I mean, there were things in this book that Colin was literally like, I didn't know that about you until mm-hmm. I read your book. Um, so there's a lot of things that my partner didn't even know about me until he read this book. So now the whole world, should they choose, <laughs> can read these things. Um, so I'm still harboring a lot of anxiety. I have mm-hmm. not yet reached some kind of like joyful tear, tearful moment or um, even excitement yet. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot of nerves. And um, I think also like I have a fear of, again, well, so we, if we can't just, dis- you know, define success, we also can't define failure really. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what failure looks like for me, but whatever it looks like, I have a, f- a fear of it and a worry that that is going to like affect the way I can write for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, so yeah, I wish I could say, <laughs> like, you know, um, like overjoyed right now for this to coming out tomorrow, but, um, it's, it's more complicated than that. I guess if I had to imagine what failure would look like, but tell me if you have an idea of like in your mind of, of like what failure might be in this context, but I guess it would be, you know, if you'd given up sending the book out, um, when you really felt like it was really a, a great manuscript and really, really important to you, um, to, to publish a book and to publish this book and that you couldn't really move on to write the next work without doing that. So I guess that, you know, might be the failure and, uh, you know, a, a failure, although also, um, it might be the best choice in the world for someone else to say, I don't want to, I don't want to be, um, sending the book out and having this, these rejections over and over again. I, so I'm not saying it would be a failure for everyone. And so I guess I feel with the promotional stuff, um, that whatever drove us both to put these books out into the world, that's what gets me doing these things that I hate and think are might be making me ill um because I feel like it's it's almost like I owe it to the book and I owe it to that part of myself that believed in it enough to to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing right I don't know yeah it's interesting I I you're used to also though like putting your whole life onto the page at this point and having people right. read it. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, um, so you're more concerned about people knowing things about you from the book or thinking they do, um, than someone saying like, I don't like this book or I'm concerned about both. I think I, I think the, uh, I'm concerned about also like thinking they know uh, misreading it or like, mm-hmm reading something very incorrectly and like having a, a sense that is like way off or something. Um, um, yeah, but yeah, I think ultimately right now, at least in this very moment, that's my current anxiety more than it like being panned. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, we read another poem. Sure. Yeah. yeah it's my good. Okay. Do we have a request? Read, read the, yeah. Read the one that, um, you don't want anyone to hear. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
read the one that has the thing in it that you don't want anyone to know, but still you published it in the book and now read it on a podcast. So thousands of people will hear it. No, you can read anything you want. Um, I can read bivalve. Uh, I will read that as a little shout out to Sharon Olds because she um, really likes this poem. Bivalve. But what of the mollusks, those sweet meats with sweet hearted armor whose possession of a wave curled inward, whose footless thrashing was the aftermath of clinical despair. On the coordinates, I was entire and sea brittle, all green glued on the outside to hold history in. So obviously you had a life before we met and it wouldn't really make very much sense for me to only talk about our life together. (laughs) Um, But uh, one of the most important things uh, about your life um, that I, that we've not argued that, that has been, that has come between us (laughs) is the entire continent. (laughs) But I really think that Brooklyn in particular was a very important um, place for you and a very important part of your life. And, and I still think of you, um, I still think that, Brooklyn is in you and is like a part of your identity. But you did make the decision um, to move back to Los Angeles where you had grown up. Um, And the book is very much um, not just set in Los Angeles, but also kind of about Los Angeles in some really interesting ways and in ways that I think came more and more to the forefront, um, in part along with the kind of more... um, more explicit writing about your grandmother um, and the history of Los Angeles. And I wondered a few things. First of all, I'm just curious to hear you talk now after having been back in Los Angeles for a while about how you feel about that move and um, being here. I still don't really get why you love it here. So you're always welcome to try to explain that to me yet again, but also about whether on some level, maybe the book couldn't have been the book that it, that it is if you hadn't moved back. Yeah. Um, I do feel like every time you visit here and I'm here, I'm like, how can I convince Rachel to love this place? Like Mm -hmm. what restaurant is it? What can I do that will make her really like it here? (laughs) Um, Because I always sense you're like, oh, I have to go to LA. This this feeling. Um, Well, I also wonder every time I come here, I'm just an idiot. Why don't I live here? So it's both. And (laughs) also, as you know, as you know, I only ever came to Los Angeles in the context of my husband's family. And so the LA that I saw is not the LA you live in. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, So I still love New York a lot, but I reached a point where I just couldn't live in New York anymore. Um, That's partially, I mean, there's a very literal reason for that. I was living in a, uh, very inexpensive apartment in Williamsburg, um, probably the last inexpensive apartment in Williamsburg, uh, and it was getting sold. So very soon I was going to see my rent, either I was going to be evicted or the new owners were going to raise my rent to a point that I couldn't afford it. So um, I just knew that my options in New York, you know, for living were were pretty few for in terms of things I could afford. um, And, I had also at that point been coming back to LA pretty often and visiting and seeing it in a completely different way than I saw it 
growing up because when I was living here, as most um, kids do, they sort of, you know, resent the place they grow up in. Um, and I, I just want to get out. Um, turns out it's really different to be in a place when you're an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I was visiting, I, I just was like, you know what? I am in my thirties now and I sort of like how it's slower paced here. And I like that. I'm not, um, like trudging three miles with like 40 pounds of groceries and, or like trying, I was like trying to like commute by bike in winter. Cause I just loved bike riding. It's like, I just feel like there's could be a place where like <laughs> out there where like, I don't know, like I can bike in January and not feel totally miserable. Um, I was like, Oh yeah, I grew up there. It's like a really nice place. Um, so, and at the same time, you know, my partner Colin, who will, he did not grow up in New York, but like you would think he did. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you'll attest to that having met him. Um, he actually also was, he had this feeling of like, I've been in New York for a decade and like, I kind of feel like there's nothing new for me right now here. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, we were both kind of staying in more than we were going out and doing things and exploring the city. And like, I think we just kind of got to a point of like, to like evolve as like adults, we needed to just change it up for ourselves um not knowing like I mean yeah I don't know where I'm gonna live in you know five years from now but what was important to us like at the moment in in 2015 was to to say to ourselves like if we don't do this like we aren't challenging ourselves really um to try so yeah that's like sort of why we did it um and I I I love living here. It turns out I have changed my tune after disliking it as a, as a teenager. Part of that is like, I'm very lucky that, you know, Morgan Parker lives here now. And so what's funny is Morgan and I were not super close at NYU. Like she was a year ahead of me. Um, and just as like MFA programs work out, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of interesting, fascinating people. Um, and I think that just the sort of year, the year was enough of a stagger for us to like know each other, but not know each other super, super well. Um, but when she moved out here, we've become like really close and mm -hmm. that's been fantastic. Um, she also like helped me so much in the, the final stages of, of this book. Um, especially with the ordering and, and cutting some, some poems. Um, but Morgan is also somebody who grew up in Southern California and moved to New York and moved back. So we have this shared history mm -hmm. there that, um, I think is really special for us. But yeah, I mean, I could go on about why I think LA is great for a long time. So. Well, I just, I just <laughs> think it's so interesting when your book is dedicated for all the daughters and then it's dedicated to your grandmother and it's for Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah which is a it's a it's a big thing yeah I was explaining um to my friend Maya that for a long time for me it was kind of like it felt when I was in New York as an undergrad I almost felt like embarrassed sometimes to be like from LA like I was like oh my god I'm like around all these people who like grew up on the east coast and like they're they're like parents are like these like whatever like fancy lawyers and they're like how this like east coast like thing about just like a, an aura about them right um and as I've gotten older I realized that that's, that was stupid <laughs> um, both thinking that and the east coast thing <laughs> is stupid I yeah, agree yeah <laughs> um and I now I'm like very proud to be from here and like especially that you know I'm 
a third generation Los Angelino. Like I said, my grandmother was born in Watts in 1935. Um, my grandfather, my, my family as a whole, we had a bodega and Downey. Um, and yeah, I mean that that's to me, to me, that's really incredible to have like a history in a city that mm -hmm. runs that deep. Mm -hmm. Um, and then on the other side of things, you know, my dad was born in Brooklyn, so I do have a little bit of that East Coast in there too. Um, but for me, that like long history, uh, the relationship I have in that long history with this city is, is very valuable to me now. Um, yeah. Well, armchair psychology also, I feel, having reread your book, that there is something specifically about the history of your family, specifically um, about thinking about stories and, and memory and what's not, you know, what's covered up, but also that there's something about being in the place where you have all of these roots, you know, all of this history um, that somehow changed or, or, or shifted not chained, that's too big of a word, but shifted um, your willingness to, or, or shifted your transparency um, or your relationship to transparency um, with uh, narrative. And I, and I, I can't quite um, put my finger on that, but almost like you didn't have to tell everything. You didn't have to hold everything um, and you weren't kind of like emotionally displaced in a certain kind of way. And then you were able to tell what you wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, that's my free therapy for, for five seconds. Everybody uh, who comes on commonplace gets I, a little bit of free I therapy. <laughs> I get, I get it too. Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, okay. You know, so when I said, I sent you my official commonplace reminder, which was so hilarious for me to send that to you. Um, and then you wrote back, well, can't we just talk only about food? And that was like <laughs> such a, a classic Christine um, comment um, uh, in, in a lot of different ways, uh, including a kind of deflection. <laughs> but um, to be fair, um, food is a hugely important part of both of our lives mm -hmm. and about our relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk either about food or weightlifting or any of your current <laughs> passions. Um, and how do you know about weight? I guess I post about it on. No, you told me because Juliana Spar is a weightlifter. Oh, right. We touched and about we, Juliana we, and then, that. And then yeah. you, and you said to me, like, we're very, I do think that there's an element to our relationship that, that, um, is kind of like evangelical. Like, like we'll be like, I, I have not joined the weightlifting um, part of your life, um, nor have <laughs> I will. yet moved to Los Angeles or gotten a dog. But these are some of the things that you have said, like, this <laughs> is really a huge part of my life. And I know what that means. It doesn't mean like, oh, and I tried weightlifting. Like, both of us are people who you know, really go deep into something or, or at least like, you know, when we have a passion or an obsession, it's like, it's very, you know, like whether it's squash, um, or a certain kind of cookbook, I didn't mean squash the game. I meant the food, um, <laughs> you know, or a kind of honey, or, um, I actually have a new obsession that I'm going to, um, 
I'm, you probably already know about it, but um, a student at a reading gave me this turmeric um, powder mm-hmm. that comes in these little packets. And it was so nice of her. And I was so shocked. Um, and I, I'm totally obsessed with it. And it's like actually really, really helped me. So anyway, stuff like that. Like I feel like we, this is like a part <laughs> where we like go through phases where we try to get the other person to join us in our current um, <laughs> obsessional passion. Right. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Yeah. But yeah, what, what, what's, what's the big thing for you right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you named a lot of them. But yeah, yeah I mean, food has like, always been a huge part of my life. Like, I think one thing about being multiracial is I, I grew up eating food from all various cultures. Um, my grandmother would cook corned beef one day and she would cook, you know, pozole the next day. So I had, I was exposed to, and, you know, we ate, I mean, Los Angeles is, to me, the great, sorry, the greatest food city. <laughs> At least in the U.S., um, Italy might have you know something to say about beyond that. But I mean, I it's all it's it's something also that is um, very valuable for my partner and I to do. Like we love to just go out and like explore the city and try new restaurants, and um, he loves to eat too. So um, for me, like I just love the the variety you can get in Southern California. I don't want to just say LA because we go to Orange County quite a bit as well. Um, it is just, you know, representative of like the diversity of people who live here. Um, and I, I think it's so fantastic. Um, and then cooking at home for me is, um, beyond, you know, loving food and, and, um, growing up on good food and wanting to like recreate good food. (laughs) Um, it's very meditative for me. Um, it just tends to be a time where like, even in my space that I don't, where I don't have my room of one's own, like often the kitchen can become that space. Mm-hmm. Um, because sadly, as much as my, as Colin loves to eat, he doesn't like to cook. So, <laughs> so I'm often the solo chef, but I, that's often fine. Like it's, it's mm-hmm. like what I like to do. And I, I like that sort of alone time doing it. Um, so, and yeah, we've swapped so many I feel like recipes over the art. I often will just reach out to you and be like, I have these things. What, what should I do? With these? <laughs> like, I have one of my favorite so many questions. zucchinis. <laughs> like, what do I do with all these zucchinis? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I haven't quite uh, gotten to the point where I have a full philosophy on this really or anything to say, but I do really feel that um, someone could, maybe someone already has, but that there's a really interesting connection between cooking and poetry mm-hmm. um, and that there's something, I don't know, there's something, I mean, it is a huge part of my life. Like I cannot believe the extent to which I think about food and cooking and ingredients and um you know, I think there's something really important uh, for me as an artist to be so, uh, to care so much about it. And then it's just gone. It's like theater or something. It's like, which I've I've never understood. Like that, to me, that just seems awful. Like, oh, you put all this work on, work into something and then you perform it and then it's over. Like with a poem, you have the poem. Um, and I think it's really important not to become like so precious about the things that you make, um, you know, an inherent in the food is like you eat it and it's over. Um, and on, on one level, I think that, that there are so many times where I just, especially, 
uh, it, for me, when I've spent a lot of time cooking something, um, and, and, and then we sit down and like dinner is just a terrible drama of emotional chaos. Uh, and there are, those are some pretty dark moments for me where I just think, why did I do this? Why did I go to this trouble? Um, and there are other moments where also I feel like for sure there are times where I'm like, I have to make dinner. And I hide in that, you know, Mm -hmm, I'm like, mm -hmm. I would rather make dinner than do other kinds of emotional um, labor. Um, But for the most part, I think it's really an important practice um, of making something really amazing. Um, And I and I don't necessarily mean fancy, um, but like striving for a certain kind of like excellence of ingredient something. Um, And then it's gone. Yeah. It's just gone. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's also a lesson in failure often, right? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, how many times like you screw up cooking, <laughs> like that can really humble you and also get you like exercise your brain to like be okay with just like fucking up sometimes. Yeah. Like when, when I have had a Passover Seder or Rosh Hashanah dinner and like, it, you know, it's different cooking for Sharon Olds than it is, you know, just cooking for my family every night, you know, so there is more pressure on that. But it is still different than holding your book in your hand and having the, those dark moments, which luckily are not all the moments where you're just like, why did I do this? Right. <laughs> what, right. I, you can't change the, you can't change what's in there. Right. You know? Right. Um, and I think that that's... Um, there's something important about having things you make that are not lasting and not um, serious in some way, even though it is really serious. Yeah. 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 I like that a lot. I think that's true. And I, I also think of cooking in a lot of ways as like a, a challenge, like a personal challenge. Um, sometimes, I mean, not all the time. There's certainly things I love to cook that I could cook, you know, with the blindfold on, but um I try and I think that's another way to like exercise that part of your brain that doesn't, I don't always exercise as much as I should. It's just like, well, I've, you know, I've, I've never made a souffle before, but like we're going to find out and see, see if I can do it this weekend or yeah. whatever. Um, so that's another thing I love about it, you know. Um, this might be sort of like so insidery and, but we always do this at Commonplace. We, we love gazing in the mirror. Um, but yeah, I wanted to know, um, since you have been doing this from the beginning, um, what are some of the pleasures, uh, and benefits for you personally, and also some of the frustrations and challenges of making this podcast? So one thing about LA is it's like super atomizing and like not, I came here fully wanting to sort of like, how do I put that? I guess I wanted to be a little more antisocial. Like Mm -hmm. I, to be totally honest, um, I, when you, turns out when you start to date someone seriously, your friend group like quadruples really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, and as much as I love our friends in New York and everywhere, I, I felt a little overwhelmed, um, with having to like do a lot of social activities all the time. Um, and on top of that, keep in like on top of like the poetry world and the writing world and go to readings and like be in touch with people from like NYU, et cetera. And so LA, you know, is it's harder to meet people here. It's harder mm-hmm. to make friends here. Um, and so I think if you're coming from somewhere else, you have to be pretty okay with like that fact. Mm-hmm. Again, I got really lucky that Morgan moved here. Um, so I'll say that like, 
commonplace for me is is a poetry community. Mm. Um, it is it keeps me in touch with you, <laughs> um, as well as the rest of our team, who's super excited. Even if we don't have as many folks who are like coming from like the poetry world directly, like are very interested in this and want to talk about this. Um, and then of course communicating with through the presses and guests, et cetera. And then the episodes themselves. I mean, mm. I feel much more connected to, um, to poetry, uh, than I think I had in a long time. Like mm. now that like, I mean, I think I would feel that way if I were just a listener, but I especially feel that way, of course, um, working on the show. So, uh, it's great. I'm, I'm glad you called me that, that day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Frustrations, challenges. I mean, just that we're not, we can't hang out together and like talk. I think it makes things move a little slower than we would want them to probably. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if we were all together, even like a once a week meeting in the same space, I mean, I think that's a lot of the challenges of like remote work in general, but you know, I think we would, things would be, we would do more probably. Um, but that's okay. I mean, that's just life. Right. Um, I think we're working on it and Mm -hmm. I, I think we're getting there. So, I thought you were going to say something about wanting the podcast to be uh, more political in in certain ways, which I also not not necessarily that we're on different sides of that. I, right. I think, um, but I, yeah. Well, that's I more of like a. I mean, if we're talking like hope, I mean, I I want us to interview artists of different disciplines. Yeah, more often, I think. It's only going to be cookbook authors from now on. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Can get those cookbooks. <laughs> Test them out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's something I, I would be really excited for us to do is like talk to filmmakers mm-hmm. and um, visual artists and of other, of other varieties. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just thinking about the fact that when I first met you, I think you were Moses's age, you know, maybe a year older. Yeah. He's 20. You were probably... Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I was about 20. And I mean, it's not like I thought you were a kid. Right. But now that I have a kid who's that age of (laughs) the age you were, and now you're you're really, you're not old, but you're not a kid. Right. And so when I met you, I am so good at math. How old was I when I met you? I'm 47 now. So when... uh, 33? Yeah. I mean, this sounds so patronizing, kind of saying like I watched you grow up in a certain kind of way in a certain part of your life, like go from student to working adult and producer. And, you know, um, we both have books out at the same time. And so in some ways we're really peers. But I also feel like and we've you know, I've joked about this with you a lot. And I even wrote this poem, you know, that has this as a refrain. But I in some ways, even though I know I'm not that old, I kind of feel like you saw me get old. Um, and, and, um, I don't know, you've, you've, um, seen me, um, either teach firsthand or talk about teaching for a really long time. Um, and, you know, been a big part of my life through at least three or four books. You must have a different perspective on me, uh, you know, than you once did. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm like thinking about, my professors, um, I don't know. I guess I, I thought like now you see me, I have, I don't feel that I have any authority in our relationship. In fact, mostly it's just like, 
what is she doing now? You know, like my foibles are so a part of like you, in some ways that's, we interact the most around the things that I can't do. Um, so I, I guess that's <laughs> what I'm saying that the power dynamic has shifted enormously. Mm. Um, even though I think I never was an authoritarian or authoritative teacher in certain ways, but just, just by age alone, um, so I don't know. I think that, I think that question was like a stand in for some other big, like, right. you know, what's it like for you to, in this moment when I'm like interviewing you, having this conversation with you really as a peer and when your role in commonplace in some ways is to kind of, um, make sure I don't fuck up too much, <laughs> <laughs> but we had this other relationship in which I, I think I helped you mm -hmm. in certain ways. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's no question there. So I'm going to try <laughs> 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 I guess just respond. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, there was like a, a shift in our relationship at some point. I don't know when it happened, but it was like, it reminded me of when I had a professor who at one point invited me and some other um, friends who were also her students to her house in the Hamptons for like a dinner. Mm. And she, I like referred to her like as professor so-and-so. And she was like, no, you can call me Eva now. Uh -huh. I was like, Oh, like, Oh, okay. Like this is a different, you know? Um, and like, even though I've, mostly always called you Rachel like I do feel like there was like a point mm. where that it, even though you didn't say that it was the same thing of like you can call me Rachel now <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> um so and I don't know when that was but um that was also I think the time when I learned to be a little more like Rachel you're fucking up <laughs> yeah, yeah thank God. um so yeah it's funny though I can't exact I can't like pinpoint when that was but I know that that I, I reckon, I definitely recognized that shift mm -hmm. at some point. Um, yeah. All right. Last, last of these. And then if you want to ask me a question, of course you always can. What are you going to talk about at dinner that I'm going to be like, what, how can I change your mind about LA? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been trying to leave New York for a long time. Uh -huh. Um, and I, I, I am very much a New Yorker, but not really by choice. Um, in certain ways. And you know we, that we moved back to New York, that I moved back to New York after graduate school because Josh wanted to live in New York and he never had. And then he um, wanted, you know, he got into Columbia. I was hoping he was going to get into Stanford. Um, I, I had always wanted to live in California, um, but he didn't get in. Um, and I... I do feel every time I come to California, um, you know, yes, LA to a smaller extent, um, you know, especially like when I've seen you, um, and also places where people live in houses. Um, you know, it's funny because people always are like, Oh, how can you raise your kids in New York? Um, that actually I think was very good for me. I think that living in a place that there was more social isolation um, would have been terrible for me because um, I already felt so isolated. Um, but now it's both much harder to leave, um, but 
also, I really, really want to. And so we keep trying, I mean, I keep applying for jobs. I can't get a job. Right. Um, you know, we're thinking about trying to, uh, Josh keeps applying for sabbaticals. Um, we're thinking of, um, going to a Spanish speaking country for half a year or maybe a whole year, even though I don't speak Spanish, but Judah does, Mm -hmm. but Judah doesn't want to go. Um, he's really rooted to his team, right? you know, and his friends and he's, you know, to take that away from him, um, you know, for, for more than, you know, a short period of time is going to be pretty wretched for him, but that doesn't mean I don't want to. And I spend more and more time in Maine. Right. Um, so I, I think the real thing about LA is I don't really, I, I'm, I, I don't love to drive which mm-hmm. is a problem. I used to feel that I would miss the winter and now I feel absolutely I would not. I, the, you know, you know, all the, the, the worst parts about, about LA, like, you know, the pollution and the fires and, you know, those things don't the seem super appeal. Yeah, sure. obviously. But I'm, I'm, I'm susceptible. I'm in a vulnerable <laughs> place. Um, I think the real thing is, 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 you know, when you, um, said the thing about how you and Colin felt in 2015, that like, it was a, it was a, it was a kind of critical moment and, uh, you, you needed to go somewhere that you felt like you were discovering, even though it was a place that you had, had grown up. And it's so, it is so different. I think of everything, I associate that quality with youth or with a kind of adventurousness and also with, um, I mean, Judah is really the impediment, um, right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel very restless and envious of that, you know, and I, I have had several moments in my life where I feel like if we don't do this, it's really a big, a big mistake and maybe we never will. And then we haven't. Right. Um, so, I mean, I've done other adventurous things, but not that. And I think, um, we, we've been looking at places in Brooklyn too, but it doesn't make (laughs) sense for us to move to Brooklyn. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I need an adventure. That is another reason that I chose, I've chosen to be child free too, is like that I want the like opportunity to live somewhere. If I want right now, I'm super happy here, but we've also flirted with the idea of like living in Mexico city for a Mm -hmm. year or, or something like that. Um, and I I kind of want that opportunity that I, you know, that to be an option, like anytime I, I need it. Um, so yeah, I hear you on, on sort of that, uh, part for sure. All right. I, I want you to read one more poem. Okay. Minimalism. I am building a collapse trying to explain what Mark Rothko did to blurring. I was told you had a cancerous mess in your chest, so I left town, looked for space. You hate modern art, so I went there. Tried to shake shake away this death, all the arranged glass that shattered, then Robert Smithson reassembled, the shine of breath broken, then refound in renewal, and stillness borne by the Beckers, a strict and grateful photograph, more ocean than the ocean when the ocean wants to rest as reliable as your window. This portrait, more honest now. 
I want to fill this Donald Judd box with ancient items, brim it over with the alive and dead, alive and dead, warm melt of wisdom and postal paper, grass of Parnassus half-bloomed, seconds extinguishing in snuff boxes. This building hoisting and holding scale and saturation up with micro screws and you, a figure in a grid of white paper glued to a hospital bed. Nonetheless, you are historical, a round character in this story where everything else lies flat, academic, one-dimensional, an action painting and a fable. If disease is a one-hued noble painting, it is another artistic movement, chewing away at our century, elbowing its way through time. Saul Lewitt new lines and I cannot, not any longer. I know why you walked away from the modern. I begin to keen curves and pause, the pulse of black light on black walls on the striped black and white of your shirt, the fading that falls between some color and no color at all. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else? Are we done? No, we oh, should go eat. We should go eat. We talked a lot about food. We should go eat. Okay. <laughs> all right. We're going to stop. You've been listening to episode 79 of Commonplace with Christine LaRusso. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by myself, Katie Fernelius, Doreen Wang, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Lake Forest Press for copies of There Will Be No More Daughters and to the NYU Creative Writing Department for audio of Christine's reading. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman, and the music you're listening to was composed, performed, and recorded by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin. Major gratitude to all our patrons who supported Commonplace in 2019, and to any of you who will join at any level in supporting the podcast in 2020. Thank you all for supporting the podcast financially, for reviewing us in iTunes, and for recommending us to students and friends. And for me and everyone at Commonplace, have a healthy and happy new year, and thank you for listening.